This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. The Corbyn era finally came to a close last week when Sir Keir Starmer won the Labour leadership contest by a landslide, comfortably beating the Corbynite candidate Rebecca Long-Bailey. Starmer's victory was further aided by victories for centre-left candidates on Labour's NEC, a final nail in the coffin of Corbynite control of the party machinery. Following comprehensive defeats in the general election and the Labour leadership contest, Many within the party expected the problems of the Corbynite era to be consigned to the past. However, some within the party had different ideas. A report drafted in the wake of the general election defeat by the remnants of Corbyn's party machinery, supposedly written in Labour's defence of the party's response to the anti-Semitism crisis, was leaked, firstly to the press, before spreading across social media. The report which was filled with unredacted details of hundreds of party members and staffers, was full of explosive allegations and incendiary leaked private messages from Labour staffers hostile to the Corbyn project. The leak began to spread after reports that Labour's lawyers advised against presenting the potentially self-incriminating dossier to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. The dossier, which attempts to shift blame away from the party leadership's response to anti-Semitism, portrays a culture of hostility and unacceptable professional conduct within the party, particularly around issues related to racism. But is the document an honest portrayal of events? Does it attempt to use unacceptable conduct in certain corridors of the party to distract from the failings of the leadership? Does the report's summary attempt to write checks it cannot cash? particularly in response to the party's own anti-Semitism whistleblowers. When I started this podcast in January, I envisaged the show would come to its conclusion following the Labour leadership election. But with this leak, the internal investigation into the report, and the EHRC case still to come, the full story of the Corbyn era of the Labour Party is far from over. I especially did not expect the first episode of this series, covering institutional anti-Semitism, to be repeatedly cited by the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party in a dossier drafted in their own defence of their handling of the crisis. It is clear that this story is far from over, and the Labour Party's turmoil will continue for as long as these problems have no resolution. As a result, while the limited weekly run of Corbynism the Postmortem has now reached its end, the podcast will continue investigating and analysing the fallout from these events for as long as necessary. And we will continue to publish new episodes periodically until these events reach their legal conclusion. Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katerji. Joining me on this episode to discuss the Labour leak, the party's response to the anti-Semitism crisis, and what this document means for the future of the party, we are privileged to be joined by both old friends and new. The new statesman Stephen Bush returns to the show to discuss the report's summary, and we are also honoured to be joined by the Jewish Labour Movement's National Secretary, Peter Mason, and journalist Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, who resigned her Labour membership following the release of the allegations contained in the report. Before we begin, I'd love to thank everyone who has supported the podcast to date. The Corbyn era is now over. However, the legal fallout has only just begun. 
Corbynism the Postmortem is a 100% solo project, and running the show is only possible thanks to the kind support and donations of our subscribers. Thanks to your continued support through Patreon, we will keep following this story until its final conclusion. And I also hope to bring you new and exciting projects in the very near future. I want to give a huge thanks again to all of you who have helped make this possible with your small monthly subscriptions. If you'd like to support this show and help me create my next project, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy or for one-off donations donating via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash ozcategy. Thank you so much for tuning in. And now, on with part one, featuring the New Statesman's Stephen Bush. Thanks so much for joining us again, Stephen. No worries, thank you for having me back. No, no, it's a pleasure. So, we thought we were pretty much done uh, with the podcast, and this uh, document has come out, and it's sort of, you know, like a, like a bomb on the way out has sort of, you know, reopened all of these wounds in the Labour Party. So can you talk to me a little bit about the document itself and what it means right now? So the document itself is a report that is reported to, uh, you know, it's been reported by ITV to have been commissioned uh, by Jenny Formby, the General Secretary, into, uh, and looks like from its structure, like it would have formed a then it was designed to be submitted to the EHRC's uh, submission, although it ended up not being submitted to the EHRC, uh, which, I mean, so the slightly weird thing is this is a, an inquiry that is now in of itself going to be subject to an inquiry. But it essentially looks at the party's tackling of uh, anti-Semitism, or rather failure to tackle anti-Semitism in, um, in the party. And it, so it explicitly makes two kind of con- conclusions slash arguments in what would have been its submission. The first is that it basically says in the 2015 to 2017 phase, um, Labour, you know, kind of internal Labour factionalism within uh, party headquarters was the central reason why anti-Semitism was not tackled. And then in twenty and in kind of twenty eighteen to twenty twenty, when Jeremy Corbyn completed his control of the party machinery and Jenny Formby became general secretary, this all vastly improved. Well, at least yeah, and improved to a point where you know it was anti-Semitism party was tackled merely as as at the same pace as as other uh, complaints of harassment or the like would have been. Now, this report has generated kind of two follow-up headlines, n- neither of which the report itself really, yeah, checks that the report itself can't really cash, and to be fair, the report itself does not attempt to. So one is this idea that in 2017, uh, Labour HQ staffers who were opposed to Corbyn actively sought to prevent the Labour Party winning the 2017 general election. Um, this is very much a line that the report does not draw, and you could not draw from yeah, from what the report alleges are uh, WhatsApp conversations, although, of course, uh, we cannot say with any confidence that they are, you know, entire, partial, faked, etc., etc., right? These are, these are all things that are obviously contended and will be the backdrop of what I think will be many legal cases off the back of this report. Um, the kind of crucial sort of sort of um, kind of consequence of of that, though, is that you kind of can't. Well, all we can say is something we knew already, which of course has been widely reported in many places, which is that uh, Corbyn inherited a, a, a headquarters, uh, the office, as it's sometimes referred to, uh, that 
had you know politics than we might describe as right brownism so you know people who voted ed balls one david miliband two in 2010 and voted for yvette cooper in 2015 who were personally quite opposed to him and then we know that there was a culture of opposition to that and a hope uh, very much than 2017 would see an inevitable defeat and he would be be carried out but we don't really have anything to to prove that sort of final that final claim the sort of second check then that i don't think it really can cash is something the report argues more explicitly which is that there was a radical improvement in the party's handling of the issue of labor anti-semitism in the second half of corbyn's leadership so let's dive into that bit um there's quite a lot left out of this report that's supposedly into the compliance unit many of the issues that were raised in the panorama uh, by the whistleblowers and indeed by the uh, Jewish Labour Movement's submission to the EHRC are clearly are not inside this dossier, um, whereas plenty of things that are completely unrelated to anti-Semitism are. Um, so just sort of, you know, what's your opinion of, of why the submission was drafted in the first place? Well, I mean, so to be honest, none, none of us know definitively. However, my understanding is that it was produced. And looking at the structure itself and then looking back at the frames of reference, that the, it, that then does make sense that, that it was produced as a submission to the EHRC. Uh, and then the party's lawyers opted not to put uh, to put the, put it for, through, and that would explain some of the the slightly strange omissions that are otherwise not in it. Because of course, the point of your submission to the EHRC is it's like a witness statement, and you don't, in your own witness statement, go, "Well, I saw X, but probably the person over there saw Y." Um, it's, it's your witness statement, as it were. So I, I, if if my understanding of its origin is correct, then that will explain some of those omissions. So also, you know, when, when we're thinking about the time frame of when it was drafted, the, the first episode of this podcast is cited three times at least in the, in the submission. So it means it's quite a recent document post post-election as it were so do, do you think that has something to do with uh the, the 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 timing of the leak as well you know obviously the other element of this story is is the leak and the personal information that was unredacted from it and how it ended up in you know in the public sphere so you know there's there's obviously going to be some recriminations from that so you know what's your take on all of it well i you know i don't know and can't speculate on the circumstances of the original leak um, I suspect one of the reasons why it then leaked so thoroughly is that is often the case when something leaks is uh, political journalists hit their phones and go, hey, this is leaked. Can I have a copy? And then what tends to happen is people go, well, if it's out there, you might as well, which, of course, is why you have the slight weirdness that uh, the copy, then, as I understand it, has been circulating online, has, as you say, unredacted details. Uh, I believe that some of the people who receive things had ones which had redacted details, but, you know, that is, that is kind of, you know, not, neither here nor there. Um, you know, my, my sort of suspicion, you know, as a kind of like long-term labor watcher is then the reason the the timing of this is is very much about um a combination uh, yeah a kind of rehabilitation of or kind of a desire to get um their own perspective across 
uh, given then, of course, the response to the EHRC inquiry will now be done by Labour's new leadership team. And I would guess that was a central part of the thing. The other question I have, and I have no idea if this is true, but there's been a very interesting court case um, in the Supreme Court in which, this, in which the Supreme Court has basically said that in a large institution, um, uh, yeah, they basically said Mayor Morrison's kind of argument was, if I understand it correctly, was, look, well, we've disciplined these people and we can't possibly be expected to be able to prevent everyone behaving in this way. Now, I have no idea if the timing of that court case and this, of that court finding and this leak happening are linked. But in terms of the big, sort of, because one of the big questions in this report causes is there are going to be a lot of legal battles about it. And in terms of the big question of what those legal, the legal liability of the Labour Party is, I guess one of the interesting timetables is did people decide that perhaps the damage to the institution they were leaving was, uh, was going to be very large? And if it wasn't, did that mean it was okay to leak? Or, of course, you know, given the nature of internal labour combat, perhaps some people like the idea that it was... Uh, but, you know, it's so hard with this type of leak to speculate about the original motives for, for sort of leak one, because whenever a report leaks, it then leaks to multiple people through multiple sources. So it, it all kind of becomes a bit of, you know, kind of... It's a bit like going, what caused World War One? You can sort of start... You can have an argument about Archduke Franz Ferdinand and you can have an argument about dreadnoughts and the answer is both. So let's let's bring it back up to the anti-Semitism then. I mean, it's clear that this this report was drafted to kind of show the Labour leadership's perspective on what happened during the anti-Semitism crisis. But again, there are some really key issues left out. You know, you can argue that what's in it is, is the conduct of the uh, GLU, um, however, it does go far beyond that. Um, and also, the reaction that it's generated online is is lots of people seem to have read whatever they wanted. You know, if you believe that anti-Semitism was cooked up a fabrication, people, people have been sharing the report saying this proves that. With the anti-Semitism issue in general, what do you think this document says about Labour's position, which seems to have shifted over the course of time. In the beginning, there was the Chakrabarti report that said, you know, Labour doesn't really have a major case to answer over anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, the leadership claimed they weren't interfering at any point, whereas this document conclusively proves that the leadership did take interest in certain cases. So in one instance, you have Labour briefing the press that the leadership don't get involved in anti-Semitism cases whatsoever. And now, after the fact, they said, yes, we did, but it was because the uh, Labour right were in control and it was a total mess. They also kept saying that everything's fine, the processes, we're handling it, yada, yada, all the way throughout this crisis, whereas now they're saying, actually, the processes were a total shambles, um, you know, and, and it was, it was anti-Semitism was an institutional factor. It was an institutional factor because of the Labour right. So where do you think the Labour narrative is now with this story having shifted so many times? Well, I mean, to be honest, I think it's important to remember that although it all feels like everyone has become very online in this era of crisis, they haven't been and the average Labour member will not have particularly absorbed uh, this story. I think, you know, the, it's kind of impossible to tell, right, because in, in one sense, this report now means that every bit of the Labour Party has somewhat acknowledged in print that they have an institutional problem and then they failed to tackle it over the last five years. And that, in many ways, ought to be the final word. However, of course, people always take, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are people who took the Chilcot uh, report as evidence and perhaps we should have just done Iraq, but with more gumption or something, right? Like, um, you know, there, there are always, you know, you can always find something you want in a large report to 
to hold your your kind of thing. I think the significant thing, and I think the interesting sort of political opportunity in this creates for Keir Starmer, is there is now essentially unity over the fact there's a problem here. And that gives him an opportunity if he makes the right choices and has the right leadership to sort of take the party on a journey than it's now. Yeah, everyone has now kind of dipped their hands in accepting that this is a problem that needs to be tackled. So I kind of think the most significant thing is that this probably frees up Keir in many ways to do what he would have wanted to do anyway. So who who comes out of this report looking badly? I mean, yeah, in the Labour Party in general, in general, I think the re- the answer to that is always everyone, really. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Look, the thing is, is ultimately, we can't really reach a conclusion about this report until the report that will be commissioned but not run by the present leadership into it happens, right? Because there are essentially three pillars in this report. There are alleged very serious unprofessional behaviours. There are There is the composition of this report and the timing of it, and there is the leaking of it and the implications that has for data protection and the safety of staff, complainants, yeah, and a whole bunch of other people. And really, the historical record on this will be, I think, defined by... Um, the report into the report, which will, you know, I, I suspect in many ways definitively either stand up or rebut various arguments about this report. What glaring omissions did you notice on the anti-Semitism side that you would, you know, if you had the opportunity to sit down with, say, Seamus Milne or, or Jeremy Corbyn, what would you put to them uh, about what, what was left out of this? Well, so this is a report very much by the party bureaucracy. So in an odd way, I guess the question that I feel is left begging in this report, right, is if there was a significant improvement in the party's handling of this uh, after the kind of the, yeah, after the civil war was sort of won, as it were, by which was the essential the consequence of the 2017 election was in Jeremy Corbyn won, albeit briefly, but won Labour civil war. Um, why did... Chris Williamson, Chris Williamson remained in the Labour Party for most of that period. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the period in which this was apparently sussed was the period in which the um, excuse I had, up until now, my knowledge of Gilat Atzmon was confined to the jazz world. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. You know, that's what he's most famous for, clearly. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, one, one, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, you've got, to, you've got to take your sort of laugh the way you can get them in politics because he's often a grim business. And no, no, he's just really cost, into jazz, Chris. He's just but, yeah, loves but, yeah, jazz. But, but confined to the jazz world, really, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. But I, you know, I just think ultimately, right, if, if, if the case is that there was a significant improvement in this period, how did confined to the jazz world happen? Just how? Yeah, yeah like... You know, how, 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 did, how did Jeremy Corbyn praise him as a very good anti-racist MP two weeks before he was supposed... Two weeks before the report says he was supposedly, you know, Jenny Formby was working very hard, everyone was working very hard on getting him out of the party, you know, two weeks after yeah. Jeremy praised him. Yeah, it is one of those things where it's just like, well, you know, ex- explain the journey that went on here, because to, you know, I think to to any outsider, uh, you know, who kind of approaches this without, you know, who tries to approach this in a fair-minded way, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that the big thing that changed was that there was a brief moment when the change split looked like it could at the least revive the Liberal Democrats in a way that would have an existential crisis for the Labour Party, right? And that feels like the more plausible scenario than some magic happened in this two weeks after an excuse, which, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, they, the, the jazz world thing really is an excuse and you'd expect to hear in a playground, not from a not from an MP, right? So let's move on a little bit and just talk about some of the other things that, that were included, you know, revelations about staffers and Diane Abbott. Uh, you know, what implications does this have for the Labour Party as a whole? I mean, so I guess one of the things is, again, we simply don't know until the report into the report. But I think in practice, I'm not actually convinced it has that much of a yeah kind of in an odd way right the you know the the big question is is to what what does Keir want to what does professionalizing the party mean as far as if you're Keir Starmer does it mean trying to get people who worked for the Labour Party before 2015 to come back does it mean trying to knit together people from civic society and campaigning organizations more broadly and having a more yeah, I don't mean to say that I think anyone employed by the Labour Party before 2019 or 2015 was not done in a meritocratic way. But does it, you know, does it mean you're kind of trying to widen the gene pool of it? What does it mean? And the, the, the shift of this report, almost regardless of what Report 2 says, is that if Keir Starmer wanted to widen the gene pool, it has now become politically a lot easier to do so and probably politically the easiest option going forward. If Keir did not want to widen the gene pool, then... In many ways, I was about to say that's got harder, but actually I'm not really convinced it has. Like, ultimately, the history of the Labour Party is people ignoring allegations of bad behaviour. Um, so I think in, in many ways the big shift is if if the Keir Starmer who ran for the Labour leadership is the real Keir Starmer, and I take the view and it broadly is, then this hasn't changed very much, but it has made that trajectory easier for Keir Starmer. Uh, and then because, you know... Even though lots of people will be saying, I agree with this because they have their own game and they're looking forward to the next leadership election or some moment where they think they can take advantage. This broadly means that in terms of what Keir has said he wants to do, he has a tailwind behind him, uh, albeit not in the circumstances he would have liked. So, you know, the the Labour left um, are obviously very, very angry about what's in this report Um one of the things that I've found that they've, they've focused on so much is kind of the idea that when Jeremy came in, staffers weren't interested in him. They were they, you know, they, they were hostile to him from the very start. So how on earth could he achieve anything when the entire party machinery was against him from the start? And this proves that the entire, you know, according to them, this proves that the entire party machinery was against him from the start. So he always had a poison chalice, um, you know, and, and actually with all of this context in mind, the Labour left did really, really well and actually maybe should have won in 2017. That's the narrative that I think has been generated by the sort of defeated Corbynite faction of the party in in the wake of of this. And, and I'm, I'm not just talking about pundits. I mean, MPs too have been circulating this with, with this sort of, you know, attitude in mind, shall we say. So what's your take on that? Well... You know, I think we have to be honest about the fact that it's not an unreasonable argument, right? Actually, imagine for a moment that this report, you know, just strike it from your mind. Imagine it didn't exist, right? When Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, there basically hadn't been a new intake of of MPs from the Labour left at any election broadly since 1997. And even then, loads of them were in very marginal seats where they weren't expected to win, right? You, know, you hadn't had a meaningful infusion of a fresh talent 
since 1987. You've had a handful of people. Obviously, Katie Clark had lost her seat in the Scottish Wipeout in 2005. But, you know, the, the, the intakes of 92, 97, 2001, 2005, 2001, 2005 especially, and 2010, were all dominated by the centre and right of the Labour Party. And you had a handful of people on the Labour left who came in in 2015. Um so he start, started with this situation where he had, a, you know, his, the only people whose ideology aligned with in the parliamentary party were either very near to the end of their careers, very callow. And if you broadly say that in any given parliamentary party, only a third of the people who are ideologically aligned to you are, are of sufficient quality to be on the front bench, that's already a heck of a, a heck of a sort of uh, handicap. And, you know, some people, you know, including some people who've been on the Labour left for a very long time, are privately of the reason they don't think Jeremy Corbyn was of the necessary quality level. And then, you know, he was very much reliant upon John McDonnell and Diane Abbott, who, even if you don't share their politics, I think you have to agree, have thought about the animating issues around borders and the new economic strategy and et cetera, et cetera, in a way that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, who they used to refer to as their shadow foreign secretary, was not across the domestic stuff. And then you, you know, again, you just have to accept, even if you just, you know, array, array, erose the, erose, erode this report from your mind, right? You had a, a party headquarters which did regard him uh, as, you know, as, you know, as, as, uh, as, you know, something I thought would be temporary. I, I don't think you have to buy in the idea of, ideas of, you know, deliberate or unconscious or working through, you, you kind of, you can completely throw all of that stuff out. Of course, it is a limitation on your ability to win and hold power if you cannot put together uh, a front bench that is both talented and aligned with you, and you do not have a party uh, apparat that is both talented and aligned with you. And that lack of a decent skills pipeline just meant that even when they were in control, they were kind of having to choose between ideological alignment and talent. Not all of the time. There are lots of talented people who are aligned with them, but there aren't. At least there definitely weren't throughout the whole of the Corbyn leadership enough for them to get that critical mass. And then when you consider them, they only needed what two and a half thousand votes probably to get into parliament to get into government in some form of minority administration. I just think it becomes quite difficult to sustain with any confidence the idea that if there had been even five more pro more Labour left MPs elected in two thousand and five, who at that point would have been a decade in into their time in Parliament when he became leader then they wouldn't have had the necessary quality just to be a, put a slightly better face on it on television, and then that wouldn't get you two and a half thousand votes. I just think it's so difficult to sustain the argument that that's not correct. Now, of course, you can also sustain the argument that the 2017 election result was a wholly negative mandate, and it was solely about Theresa May, and everything the Labour Party did on both sides was entirely negative. And again, you could, that stands up and, and works, and I don't think we can dismiss that. Well, I mean, out. also, you know, the election was called because Labour was polling so atrociously because well, Jeremy this, Corbyn was so unpopular at the this, time. This, of so. course, is the other problem with all of the 2017 hypotheticals, you know, when people go like, oh, you know, would Yvette Cooper have one or would a more united Labour Party one. The 2017 election only occurs in the context of Labour's perceived weakness. So, yeah, you kind of have this question of, you know, had the Labour Party been even a bit more impressive, right? If, if the Labour Party, you know, I mean, so to take, say, um, yeah, actually, I think a really good example of this is Bell Ribeiro Addy, formerly Diane Abbott's Chief of Staff, now the new MP for Stratham, someone who would have expected in normal times yeah, had the right right of the party not been so dominant in 2005, probably to have come in a bit earlier. Now, I think even if you had someone who just has 
that higher level of quality than many of the people they were putting up on the front bench in that time to go on television. I think probably that is worth a couple of percentage points in the opinion polls. So perhaps you don't get a 2017 election. Or you get a 2017 election, which is much more keenly aware of a need to win. Right, The 2017 election on the Tory side was conducted wholly as this kind of ideological argument within the Tory party. Right, you know, Nick Timothy was going to say the things he believed. We, the voters, were going to obediently vote for it to stop Corbyn. And they didn't at any point need to be any conversation about things we, the voters, might like or want to vote for ourselves. And of course, if you throw out any of those things, maybe, that, maybe it changes. But I just think because of its closeness and because of the very real institutional challenges that Jeremy Corbyn faced. Right? I don't think if, if, if a politician as talented as Tony Blair uh, became Labour leader in the circumstances Jeremy Corbyn did, you know, which he only had 15 genuine Blairites, some of them, yeah, many of them even, septuagenarians, the remainder of them you know, elected for a couple of months uh, at the time of his leadership election, uh, I do not think that Tony Blair could have in those circumstances, being the architect of the 1997 election. So I think then you, you have to accept that those limitations on Corbyn had real tangible electoral effects. I just think it's not intellectually honest to, uh, to, to believe otherwise. Do you think this report is actually the final nail in the coffin as to whether or not Labour was institutionally anti-Semitic under Jeremy Corbyn, whether or not the report's conclusions, which seem to suggest that it was, but it was the Labour right's fault, the previous administration's fault, or, you know, whether you accept the the other side of it, which, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's the Labour right or the Labour left, whoever was in control, the institution still mishandled anti-Semitism cases. Does this report effectively prove what the Labour leadership denied all along, that the Labour Party was institutionally anti-Semitic under Jeremy Corbyn? Yeah, I think in this report... And yeah, I think actually the allocation of blame is very important, right? And I think one of the important things if Labour is to tackle this problem, and I say there's someone who thinks the problem did get considerably worse under Jeremy Corbyn, is to understand that the problems of Labour's culture and practices are far deeper and more widespread across their ideological firmament. Oh, we did we did have the thick of yeah. it, which people seem to forget was based entirely on, you know, Labour's internal strife. Yeah, exactly, right? This is the thing. Is I, I think there's been there's been an awful lot of, you know, what I always think of as the make Labour relevant losers again, which kind of seems to believe yeah, act as if, you know, the Labour Party in twenty ten or in twenty fifteen has had been triumphantly endorsed by by the country as a whole. But I do think the important thing is that this report means that there is now no bit of the Labour Party which doesn't accept that they had an institutional problem. And therefore, yeah, like I said, I think that does have to be the final word really, in terms of the history of this period of the five years. There was an institutional problem. I think that's a great point to leave it at. Thank you so much for joining us again, Stephen. That was part one featuring Stephen Bush. But before we move on to part two, how does eight craft beers for the price of a London pint sound? My friends over at Beer 52 sent over a box of incredible craft ales this week, which went down a real treat in our household. Since 2014, Beer 52 have been on a quest to find the best beer money can buy anywhere on the planet. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, they send you a new case of craft beer from a different part of the world. If you're looking to stock up on beer, now's your chance. Beer 52 have even created a special introductory link for fans of the podcast, so why not head over to their site and give them a try? All you need to do is go to wwwbeer 52 slash post that's www.beer52.com slash post 
and cover just £5 and you'll get your first case of eight globally sourced fresh as can be craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. And now on with part two featuring Nadine Bachelor Hunt. So Nadine, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, my pleasure. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were about the uh, dossier that was leaked the other day. Um, oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, I think the overwhelming um, feeling was just that anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was worse than we thought it was. Um, I think it's also revealed that um, ethnic minorities within the Labour Party just became some sort of like weapon in internal feuding. Um, and it also shows that the the way in which the culture of you know the negative culture of bullying and stuff in labor was suggested as if it was on one side of the party or one side of the argument has just kind of been blown out of the water and it's demonstrated that there are issues when it comes to bullying harassment racism in all aspects of the labor party not just one side um and and that's why i've been slightly confused by the kind of negative reactions of the release of the report by people that claim to be anti-racism activists i understand there's concerns around, um, you know, people's anonymity being breached. But on the whole, I would have assumed that, you know, if this was going to be submitted to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, this adds more clout to the, the accusations of racism in Labour, not less. Um, yeah, so my initial reaction was just kind of like shock and, yeah, and sad and sadness. And I, I cancelled my membership. Um, after reading it because I just decided that it was just um, just a bridge too far it had gone on too long and it was just another another chapter in the nightmare so I'm going to try and sort of separate out the dossier into its sort of component elements as it were so can you talk to me about the anti-semitism to begin with and then we can move on to the wider racism issue and the issue of uh, bullying and harassment and so on yeah so so when it comes came to the anti-semitism in general I think the issue was that there was anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, I think, just generally as it is in society as a whole. But I also think as the party did lurch to the left so when it came to, you know, values, I do think it attracted groups of people that, some of which hold hostilities to Jews, some of which were hiding that behind hatreds of people, like things like Israel. I think some of it was people that were miseducated and misled. I think there was a whole myriad of reasons but fundamentally the problem was is that it was constantly denied that it was an issue which caused it to escalate um so so that was the initial problem in the party that there was anti-semitism but it was consistently just failed to be dealt with or, or denied um and then obviously this report being released finding out that there was anti-semitism in the party so it acknowledged it, it doesn't deny it but it was almost aggravated intentionally for political purposes to attack the leader when there were failings in leadership to deal with anti-Semitism at the same time, it just seems that it just keeps escalating. This anti-Semitism issue just keeps keeps escalating. Um, and I found it very... I mean, I left the party in 2017 because of anti-Semitism, because I felt like the party weren't doing anything to handle it properly. Obviously, this dossier shows me... Um, it gives me a lot more information about what happened then and what made me why I was feeling that way then. Um, I rejoined last year, believing that Labour were making efforts to to kind of deal with it and they were being more outspoken on it. Um, and obviously now it's just, you know, finding out what's in that report now, it's just more of the, more of Labour founding on anti-Semitism, Jews being weaponised. I mean, the community was terrified 
on the whole by what was happening in Labour, significant proportion of the community were contemplating leaving the country. Um, it, it, to know that there were people in the party that were actively stoking that, and there were also people denying there was an issue, it's just, yeah, the whole thing is just awful. So what evidence do you think is presented in the dossier that proves that people in the party were deliberately stoking the anti-Semitism issue? Just the sections which, you know, include things like frustrating complaints procedures or, you know, the acknowledgement that people dragging their feet on, on complaints when they knew that this was an issue that was causing a lot of concern. Um, and then just the hostility and then that coupled with the, um, the the kind of factionalism that you see within within the document just contributes to this whole thing where it's like you had obviously outside of the dossier, there's other dossiers that show that anti-Semitism was denied or, you know, Jews were treated really badly. And then when you add this in to see people were actively frustrating it, were kind of relishing at any opportunity to make the party look bad under Corbyn. And this was another weapon. Um, and obviously with like McNichol and everything that went on with him, it's like the idea that Labour were in some ways sitting on complaints or, or it's just that whole culture. It's just so much more factional infighting. And even after this dossier, seeing people like Chris Williamson going on about how it's, you know, it shows the Israeli conspiracy theories and it's all about Palestinian liberation. It's just like you're now using Palestinians as another weapon in this factional fighting. It's just like minorities just keep being deployed in this nightmare in Labour. And um, and yeah, for me, I think this, this document shows anti-Semitism in Labour is worse than we thought, not better. And I think a lot of people have interpreted it a different way, um, which also demonstrates the scale of the problem in the party, if there are people thinking this is some sort of vindication for the party. I do think there's been a, a really sort of weird mix of interpretations, whereas, you know, whichever faction you're from, you can interpret it a very different way. I, yeah. wa I was speaking to Stephen Bush uh, just before I spoke to you, and Stephen Bush says the report summary writes a check that its findings cannot cash. Now, which is sort of why I wanted to split the report into different elements, because whereas I believe it does prove certain things because they have evidence of you know, WhatsApp conversations saying certain things. I think it also makes conclusions uh, such as that anti-Semitism cases were being deliberately sat on, that it doesn't evidence necessarily with, you know, the hard evidence that it does present of what was being said about certain members of staff and certain other issues within the wider context of the report. So my my thing with the interpretations are, is, as you said, if Chris Williamson can interpret it as a as a sort of vindication and Kerry-Anne Mendoza from the Canary can see the report as a vindication, whereas some people in the Jewish labour movement are unhappy with the conclusions that it makes and, and they disagree with them, uh, that would obviously fly in the face of what the whistleblowers said to Panorama. So I guess my question is, do you think this report absolves the Labour left of its uh, behaviour with regards to anti-Semitism? And do you think it does cash the cheque uh, that cases were deliberately sat on to make Jeremy Corbyn look bad, as the report alleges? I think, I, I, I don't think it's an either or game. I think fundamentally it shows how both, like, how anti-Semites in the party were aided and abetted by people that wanted the party to look bad, but those people 
had to exist in the party in the first place. It's not like there's one person to blame for all of this. You know, there was denialism on the left. I think the denialism on the left was aggravated by the fact that there was clearly factional feuding going on in the party to aggravate the issue. So I think some people on some level feel vindicated in that, you know, we told you so. But I think they're very different to the people that are saying it was all a smear. I think there's different levels to this. And I think there's attempts to see it as black and white thinking. It's possible to acknowledge that there was anti-Semitism in the party. And it's also possible to acknowledge that it was weaponized by various factions for different reasons. So that will mean that some people that were saying it's being weaponized, it's being exaggerated, may have been right in certain contexts. That doesn't mean that there wasn't anti-Semitism. And then it's not, I think the, the risk that everything, everything with politics always risks falling into is seeing something as a zero-sum game. Like, both things can be true. There can be anti-Semitism in the Labour Party that wasn't dealt with properly. It can also have been made, like, aggravated by people in the party with bad views. That doesn't negate either side. It just shows more... It shows there are more failings than we realised in the first place. And I think... The problem is, is the lack of nuanced debate in this. I think for any for Jewish people um, in the Labour Party that aren't necessarily affiliated with Jewish labour movement, um, which I was and, and many of my friends were, they could see that this was happening. But the problem was, is the far left or cranks, as you call them, were calling it a complete smear. And then the people on the right of the party that we now know, many of which were using the issue, were saying these people are crazy. They're they're making out like there's a plot, and there is when actually the truth was somewhere in the middle. And if anything, it just shows that Jews were treated more horrifically than we realised in the first place. It doesn't make anyone look good in any of this. And I think it's really telling that some people have almost rejoiced in this release of the dossier. Whereas if you care about Jewish people, your first instinct would be to be like, oh, this is horrific. Like, this, this, no one should be happy about this. Like, this just shows it goes deeper than we originally, initially thought. So it's been hard for me to see people rejoicing at the fact that Jews were in many levels betrayed by people in the party that claimed to care about them, whilst also having to deal with anti-Semitism in the party that was denied. So it, it's it's just a mess. And I, I don't understand how people are interpreting this on any level as a victory on any side. Like, I, it baffles me. So on one side, you have the whistleblowers that spoke to Panorama um, and who broke their NDAs to do so. And they've you know, given testimony to the EHRC. And on the other side, you have this dossier which alleges that some of those people were deliberately... I mean, it's, it doesn't directly make that allegation, but it sort of at least implies that the processes were being frustrated uh, by the GLU rather than the Labour Leadership's office. So these are two contradictory uh, interpretations of what happened. These issues are still not dealt with and they're clearly going to go to... Mm. They're going to go to court. So... I guess my my question to you is: Do you think this document is an entirely honest portrayal? I think I think fundamentally, I think it it I think it's vital in any situation to tell both sides of the story. And I do think whatever people want to say, the reality is the fact that none of this was known, and none of this had been spoken about on any level, demonstrates that that is an issue. If you were talking about Labour being a transparent movement under Keir Starmer then it's vital that this is aired. Like, everything needs to... If this is ever going to be dealt with properly, everything needs to be brought out and discussed and shone light, uh, and had the light shone on it. Um, and I find it very strange that Starmer's lawyers advised him against 
sending it to the EHRC. I, I, if anything, it would be more of a reason, particularly when it comes to other ethnic groups and how they've been treated in it. So I do think it just shows more layers of this just weird culture within Labour where it's just a lack of transparency, a lack of honesty. If anything, this report provides more information. And if Labour, as I said, if Labour are ever going to recover from this, there can't be a secrecy anymore. There can't be this, you know, frustration of procedures, um, you know, conspiracy theories. Everything needs to just be put out in the open so people can start to heal. And I, I don't think until people have it out and have their say that this will ever deal with itself. And there's evidence now. I mean, someone leaked this document because they felt, I, I imagine they felt that, you know, this the side, their side of the story wasn't going to be heard. The fact that Labour's lawyers weren't going to do anything with it concerns me, particularly when it comes to safeguarding other people in the report, you know, MPs that have been subjected to abuse. I find it very strange that Starmer would kind of, not his lawyers, not Starmer, but would sit on it almost or say, you know, leave it. I just, I find that very concerning and I think it is pretty damning for the lawyers to not even entertain invest. I mean, it's a very, very long document and there's some really concerning stuff in there. For the lawyers to say, I'll leave it, that that really worries me when it comes to this new era of transparency in Labour. Apparently, the Labour lawyers said that the, they didn't want to submit the document because it was incriminating, it could incriminate the party. So do you not think that, you know, especially the claims that the part that are made in the document that sort of imply that anti-Semitism was driven by factionalism, that only proves that Labour was institutionally anti-Semitic. So therefore presenting this document in your defence as the as the Labour lawyers are acting in, you know, can you see the sort of contradiction there? You wouldn't submit something potentially incriminating in your own defence, would you not? Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. But when Corbyn was leader and when Starmer uh, was, was leader, they said, you know, we're going to turn a chapter on this, we're going to be transparent. So even if they weren't going to submit it, they should have done something with it. And my instinct is that they were planning on just hoping that it kind of went away. And, you know, say whatever you like about Corbyn, but he said, we're going to be transparent on this. Keir Starmer said, we're going to be transparent on this. The fact that this had to be leaked and the fact that since, it's, I mean, I know we'll move on to the to the effects it's had on other communities, like the black community, but the fact that it had to be leaked to get out there it really is deeply concerning to me. And, you know, whether it incriminates the party or not, if they're going to be an honest, submit all the evidence, submit everything, you know, be as, as open as you can be. If you're going to restore the trust and the faith of members in a party, kind of hiding behind things or using smoke and, mirror, smoke and mirrors, or it's just not going to work. The truth will always come out in the end. So you don't have faith in the, you know, inquiry into the report that's been launched by the Labour leadership? I just... I, to be honest, I don't have much faith in Labour at the moment, as it is generally. I mean, there's some things that were in the report about West Streeting and Keir Starmer has appointed him to his cabinet. And I genuinely, generally don't have confidence that Labour knows... I don't, I don't think any party knows how to deal with what's happening in the Labour Party. I don't think any party's really had to deal with something on this scale. Um, so for me, I think the report should have been released redacted. I think the huge issue is that it, it wasn't released um, unredacted. Um, but I do think that if, if this is the only way that certain information is going to get out, then it needs to be aired out there. And I, the fact that, as I said, Starmer knew about it doesn't get, does not fill me with hope. You know, he's been leader for around two weeks now. He said he was going to introduce a new era. And even if you're not looking at it from an anti-Semitism perspective, there's, there's concerning stuff in there about other minorities. I fear that 
it's almost like we risk we risk having a hierarchy of racism if we're willing to sit on things or it, it's just it's not transparency it's not the transparency that Corbyn said he'd implement it's not the transparency that Starmer said he'd implement now everything's out in the open I hope moving forward that the party understand the necessity for transparency because the truth will eventually come out whatever that is so it's better to just face it straight on rather than have to have someone you know attack you with it and try and catch you off guard moving on to Corbyn quickly the document itself it doesn't really obviously because it focuses on the GLU but there are some really glaring omissions such as Jeremy Corbyn praising Chris Williamson as an anti-racist MP you know just two weeks before he was eventually suspended by the party um you know it, it there are there are loads of allegations made by the Jewish labor movement in their submission to the EHRC that aren't mentioned in the dossier there are lots of uh, things that are mentioned but are given a generous interpretation of the labor leadership was genuinely trying to do its best and they were hindered on all sides by you know factionalism and so on and so forth however corbyn and his press spokespeople at the time throughout this have said there isn't an institutional problem uh, we're dealing with it the processes have all improved since i came in charge etc 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 they also denied having any involvement in the cases we don't you know inter intervene in the cases in any way whatsoever this document proves that in certain cases the labor leadership did take an interest and did give leadership towards the glu on these issues so you know there are kind of glaring omissions there and you know if you if you talk about the transparency that both corbyn and starmer offered even this document kind of flies in the face of everything Labour said about anti-Semitism over the last couple of years, at least. Yeah, I agree. And that's well, that's why I think it's important that it's come out, because I think it, it as you talk about how there's glaring omissions in the document, if you put all of these documents together, all these dossiers together, you see a fuller picture. You know, there's, there'll be glaring omissions elsewhere. There'll be glaring omissions on some of the things Corbyn did in different documents, because... The, the, what's become clear with all of this is that a lot of it has been driven by factual infighting. So I imagine when it comes to the things that have been produced by other people in the party that may have had their motives that we may have seen mentioned in this dossier, they'll have omitted things. I think what this has done is aired everything out. It's filled in any gaps. I feel like everyone's had their say now. I do genuinely think that we've reached a point where there's no one in the party that feels like they haven't said what they've got to say which is a huge, whether it's right or wrong, I think that's a huge development because it now means we can move forward constructively where people aren't having to hold things in, where there aren't thing that, things that have happened that are a bit dodgy but have been buried for political reasons. I think now we've all got a very broad picture of what's been going on with the anti-Semitism crisis in Labour over the last several years. And now we can maybe, now the party can maybe start to heal. But I don't think that could have happened until something like this came out because I, th I don't think, it was while it was a shock, I don't think, it was a surprise for some people, but I think it was hard for some people to articulate what was happening without contributing to the issue. So I think, yeah, I just think transparency, obviously, as you say, wasn't ha wasn't happening under Corbyn, wasn't happening until now under Starmer, kind of forced his hand. But now we've got that transparency. I do think we'll be able to have, the Labour Party will maybe be able to build some brighter future for, future for itself. Um, but yeah, that's that's my take on it. So if we could talk about some of the wider issues raised in the um, dossier, um, some of the bullying, some of the WhatsApp statements and how it might have affected other minority communities in the country. Can you give me your perspective on what this dossier alleges? Yeah, so things, it's just the kind of the, the, way, the 
when it comes to black MPs, um, particularly the way that they characterise Diane Abbott as an angry black woman, um, for me, because when it comes to Diane Abbott, we have to remember that it's not just the press that are really hostile to her. It's not just the public. You know, she gets rape threats, she constantly gets racist abuse. To think that around the time when she was getting particularly bad levels of abuse, there were people in the Labour Party that were ridiculing her or trying to direct journalists in her direction or referring to her as an angry black woman or just all of these kinds of things. It just demonstrates that there's this kind of, this culture within the Labour Party that has very little respect for minorities. And I think in Jews and other minorities, you know, the way that Jews have been weaponized and then the way in which black MPs have been spoken about. If you look at even things like talking about hoping young activists set fire to themselves, just language like this, this nasty, aggressive culture that's obviously been festering away in the party for a long time now. Um, it just concerns me. And, you know, the fact that there were Labour staffers, I've even, even tried to block an apology to Diane Abbott and Dawn Butler and Clive Lewis after what came out in this dossier. I just, it just, for me, it's just damning for the whole party and a, a, a lot of other, particularly black people, because I feel people feel the need to draw the distinction that the MP is getting particularly targeted where black MPs and there were tropes used about them. Um, you know, it's just really alienating and particularly when Labour rely on the ethnic minority vote within areas like London so much to know that people at the head of the party had the audacity to, you know, do something like that to someone like Diane Abbott. It just, yeah, it just feels like a massive betrayal. And it feels like our community has almost been harvested for votes by people in the party that don't actually really care about us. Um and yeah, and and then the fact that Labour try and hold itself up as this, you know, obviously with the anti-Semitism crisis, it was, it, it damaged its reputation as being an anti-racist party. But you know, to know that this was the party supposedly challenging, you know, the anti-black racism in the Labour in the Conservative Party, to see that, you know, that level of just nastiness. And if that's what's, you know, that's only what we know about. I dread to think what actually has been said by, by behind closed doors that we don't know about. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just upsetting generally. So, do you think the Labour Party has a wider institutional racism problem? I think I think it does. I mean, I think the dossier for me shows that it does absolutely have an institutional racism problem with anti-Semitism and just generally. And I do think now that the submission to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, although I have my issues with the Equality and Human Rights Commission, I do think that it should include all forms of racism in the Labour Party because. My concern is that there are people who have been acting as, you know, fighting anti-Semitism in Labour that have themselves said racist things about MPs like Diane Abbott. Um, one of them was named in the report as submitting a lot of complaints about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party to the party, but is also responsible for, for saying things that are racist about Diane Abbott. So I think that to, to, to focus on one form of racism in the light of this dossier would would risk having a hierarchy of racism. And one of the huge things for me is that we work around this idea of institutional racism. That was a term coined in the McPherson report, which looked into institutional racism in the Met Police against black people. Now, if this 
report that's been sent to the HRC doesn't include the racism in the Labour Party towards black people, despite the fact that the term institutional racism came from institutional racism to black people. I think it would be a bit of a travesty on a personal level as somebody that is black and Jewish. I think if the Labour Party wants to be serious about tackling racism, it needs to acknowledge that it has a racism problem with all minorities, not just Jewish people. And um, and yeah, and I, th- and I think it needs to be investigated because I think that's the only way it will heal. And I think it's the only way that it will encourage other members from other ethnic minority communities to feel like they can rejoin the party. Because at the moment, um, you know, I, 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 I myself have left um, and I know a lot of other BME people that are just, that have, have had enough. Um, and they also feel that they've been let down um, by, you know, people in the party that claim to be angry about anti-Semitism. Like, personally, I'm frustrated that the Jewish Labour movement hasn't said more, um, considering, you know, how vocal they've been about anti-Semitism and how, you know, we need to tackle all forms of racism in Labour, yet, you know, this dossier has come out and it's kind of damning, but we've not really heard much. So I think this needs to be a reckoning for the whole party. So we've got um, Peter Mason from the Jewish Labour movement. He's, he's on next. Uh, so if you had one question that you would pose to him, what would that be? Um, just the way, what are the, are the Jewish labour movement going to be expressing solidarity with other ethnic minority groups that are clearly like victims of this, this racism problem within the Labour Party? Um, because solidarity when it comes to fighting racism is everything. And I really, I can't, I can't emphasise enough that there are people that have acted as people fighting anti-Semitism in Labour that have their own racism problems. I'm not going to name names, but there are people listed in that report, as I said, that have made like anti-Black racist comments that are being touted as reliable sources of anti-Semitism. Unless we air all forms of racism in the Labour Party, unless we get it all out there, we risk people that have claimed to be anti-racist while also abusing other people in the party getting away with it. So I think transparency, openness an acknowledgement of the issues, what Labour needs to do moving forward. And I think Jewish Labour movement need to be there to express solidarity with other groups during this because, you know, solidarity goes both ways. And particularly with the black community, we were constantly uh, used to draw parallels between, you know, this would never happen to black people. Even the Board of Deputies said no other minority would be treated like this in Labour. We now know that's not true. Um, and a lot of black people already knew that wasn't true. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the Jewish labour movement need to step up to the plate and say, you know, we we acknowledge that we need to stand in solidarity with other ethnic minorities through this. With the podcast, every guest that's come on, pretty much, I've asked, what did Corbynism get right? But we're in the post-Corbyn era now. So with this particular case, I guess what I want to ask you is, as someone that's been generally supportive of labour over the last few years, do you think Corbyn personally shoulders any blame for the anti-Semitism crisis? Yeah, I think I think this is the thing with the dossier. I don't think it absolves Corbyn of any responsibility. I think it shows that responsibility for this crisis rests across the party. And I think Corbyn was too slow to deal with things. I think he, you know, some of his comments in the past, calling Hamas and Hezbollah his friends, he's made a lot of errors himself. Um and yeah, so I, obviously some of the responsibility lies with him. And he, he's himself has said, you know, some of the responsibility lies on him. I don't think he's ever said, you know, none of this is my fault. Like, I, I don't think he's ever come out, at least, you know, the last time he's spoken, ever come out and said the closing statement, I don't take any responsibility for this. He has. Um, so when it comes to that, I think 
it's it's all very complicated, as you say. Corbyn said he wasn't getting involved with individual cases, but then actually this dossier shows that he was. There's there's so much to be unravelled and so much to be unpicked. But of course, Corbyn bears some blame, and I don't think he himself would say that he didn't. Um, so yeah, and when it comes to what Corbyn is in, got right overall, I mean, when it comes to you know economics, everything else, I'm on board with. But I do think, yeah, I do think he does bear some responsibility for this anti-Semitism crisis. And had he been more firm, had he spoke out earlier, had he been more clear from the offset, it wouldn't have escalated in the way that it did. But that's what I mean by there were failings on both sides. The left acted a certain way, and then the right of the Labour Party aggravated it and manipulated it. And neither would have existed without the other. So it's a, it's kind of like a chicken-egg scenario. Thank you so much for joining us, Nadine. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to part two featuring Nadine Batchelor-Hunt. Okay, so we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But here's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on UK Netflix, which is where ExpressVPN comes in. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Our friends at ExpressVPN have even created a special offer for fans of the show. Just head on over to expressvpn.com post and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com post. And now, on with part three, featuring the JLM's Peter Mason. Hello, Peter. Thanks for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure. So can you talk to me about your initial thoughts about the Labour dossier that leaked? Where really to begin? Um, it's quite difficult. So... Um, ever since the Jewish labour movement called in the Equalities and Human Rights Commission in September 2018, um, we've pretty much maintained a consistent view that the governance and the leadership of the party in respect to dealing with anti-Semitism is fundamentally broken. And nothing in the reports as published really detracts us from that view. We've spent the last uh, year speaking with over 70 whistleblowers, whether they are former or present members of staff or officers of the party, to gather evidence and to present an account of what has happened um, to the EHRC. Um, this report clearly um, seeks to do a similar activity, uh, but appears to have come from the governance and legal unit of the party itself, presenting what some would consider to be um, a very partial um, both in the sense of timing and of intent, account of the last five years. How does the segment on anti-Semitism differ from the JLM's submission to the EHRC? What are the differences in the narratives? Well, look, you know, for, for a report that calls itself a report exploring um, the, the, the handlings of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, a significant quantity of it clearly discusses the attitudes and behaviours of former members of staff, and you know, let's 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 be, let's say this in no uncertain terms: you know, racist, misogynistic, Islamophobic, discriminatory language, whether it's discussed in a private WhatsApp group of senior staff members, or directed by Labour Party members to other Labour Party members online or in meetings, is entirely unacceptable, and quite rightly. 
people who have said the things that they are alleged to have said should be ashamed, just as those who are subject to disciplinary processes for doing that in public should be ashamed of their behaviour and their activity too. But what you have in this report is a, is a partial account that seeks to use ultimately what is circumstantial evidence of the attitudes and behaviours of certain members of staff to present a narrative that in many ways entirely removes the previous leadership or the current um, incumbents at Southside uh, from the narrative. And we know from the whistleblower statements, the public record uh, and the evidence that we've mobilised of the of the elements that are just completely missing from the report, um, as well as different interpretations. I just spoke to Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, uh, yeah. and she was concerned that the Jewish labour movement, in her opinion, hadn't done enough to show solidarity with some of the communities victimised in the dossier. Well, so the first thing to say is that we're in the middle of Passover, and just like all Jewish communal organisations, the Jewish labour movement tends not to make public statements during what are considered to be non-working days. And so the publication of the report, which happened um, effectively on, on Monday, has led us into a period where uh, the Jewish community go offline. Uh, to be quite frank, we've all, been, um, we've all been trying to read the document, understand what it says, uh, what it means in terms of the contents, uh, and to figure out what our response should be, because actually this is a huge departure from the Labour Party's position on anti-Semitism, as has been for the last two years. You know, we've been told consistently that anti-Semitism isn't a problem, that it's a minor problem, that it's a minuscule issue um, that uh, represents only 0.5 of the Labour Party membership. And that line was being deployed as recently as um, the, the, the general election. Of course, racist attitudes and behaviours displayed by anybody to any community, whether that's Diane Abbott, Dawn Butler, um, or, or, or anyone, are completely unacceptable. You know, and, and just as the Jewish labour movement um, showed solidarity uh, with the Chinese community, receiving awful racism as a context and as a consequence of, of the COVID-19 hysteria, we absolutely stand you know four square with any um, any minority group who who has been on the receiving end of, of, of racism from anybody so let's talk more about some of the allegations in the in the dossier now the the JLM have obviously gathered testimony from whistleblowers and the dossier alleges that some of these whistleblowers were in fact the problem in the party and not what the whistleblowers are alleging, which is that the leadership was the problem. How does the JLM respond to these allegations? So, and again, the the, the report is, a, is an account. You know, it's a witness statement. Um, the report doesn't allow for um, the people um, who it identifies to have any sort of right of reply. Uh, and likewise, the, the nature in which it, 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 publishes, it publishes the comments that they make, um, uh, nobody's had a response to. You know, w the Jewish labour movement have mobilised evidence. We, we have provided accounts. And it will be for the Equalities and Human Rights Commission to be able to determine what's accurate and what's not. And we've always consistently said of the Labour Party that it, we were never confident that it had the ability to mark its own homework and that it was right that an independent organisation with the ability to um, summon documents and release people from their non-disclosure agreements 
uh, and to um, summon evidence uh, was the right thing to do. You know, we did that in a context of the Labour Party being very belligerent in not wanting to admit fault. Now, you know, do not do not think for one second that each and every one of the whistleblowers who has made their own contributions to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission has not already considered their own responsibility and role within the last four and a half years. Uh, and quite rightly, many of them have spoken, some of them on the public record and some of them on the private record, about the mistakes that they believe that they made. What it will be, What will happen, however, and what is entirely right, is for an independent body to be the one to make the findings of fact in relation to anti-Semitism with the Labour Party. What do you think are the most glaring omissions from the dossier's perspective of what happened inside the Labour Party during the anti-Semitism crisis? Well, funnily enough, some of the most glaring omissions um, relate to activity that happened um, from 2018 onwards. But I have to say, you know, no report that tries to examine anti-Semitism within the Labour Party um, should seek to completely sidestep what is the most fundamental issue in all of this. And the issue that we've consistently talked about as a movement that isn't one of policy or procedure or apportioning blame, but the fundamental question, which nobody seems to be concentrating on, which is why is it, why is it in the last four and a half years the Labour Party seems to have imported significant quantities, significant quantities of anti-Semitism into our ranks. Why is it that we have this problem in the first place? And what is it about the culture, attitude and behaviour of the party that has sought to tell people that, is that it is acceptable to behave in such um, disgusting ways? And that was not a problem that started in 2017. It wasn't a problem that started in 2019. And it certainly wasn't a problem that, um, that started now. It was a problem that started in 2015 that gradually grew in the context of Labour students right through to CLP meetings, to Labour Party conferences and beyond. And, and again, we have consistently said at every single one of those steps that the leadership, that the NEC that Southside had to take the necessary action. We are completely unconvinced right through the four and a half years that the necessary action was taken. And, we'll, and we've asked the Equalities and Human Rights Commission to be the independent arbiter of what is fact and what is fiction. So for the last four and a half years, the Labour Party's official line is that it's categorically incorrect to say the Labour Party is institutionally anti-Semitic. Whatever differences of opinion you may have with the conclusions found in this dossier, do you think it itself proves that Labour had an institutional problem with anti-Semitism? Well, I mean, you, you, only have to, you only have to understand some of the backstory as to how this report has been leaked to come to the conclusion that the answer is, the answer is yes. The Labour Party prepares an internal document that seeks to tell the story of Labour Party anti-Semitism to mobilise it into the Equalities and Human Rights Commission as an appendix to their own report, a report that nobody has seen, not even the governing board of the Labour Party, the National Executive Committee. And lawyers tell the General Secretary that the report effectively undermines the party's own case that it is not institutionally racist. So knowing that the party's own accounts 
of um, the last four and a half years so thoroughly undermines the position that they have consistently taken, there is not a single person inside the Labour movement who can, who should not, um, who, who cannot deny um, the, the, the evident truth that the Labour Party has an institutional problem with anti-Jewish racism. How has the JLM responded to Keir Starmer's response to the dossier's leaking? Well, look, the, 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 the dossier contains the names of 30 complainants. It contains the name of 150 members of staff, and it contains the names of 275 respondents, people who've been alleged of conduct that ranges from anything of serious sexual harassment all the way through to anti-Semitism, racism, Islamophobia, and other forms of bigot- bigotry and, um, and discrimination and harassment. Contains at least one private phone number as well that I've seen. Uh, yeah, interestingly, of, of a press officer. Press officer of the press Labour officer Party. Of, of the Labour Party, yeah. Who, um, yeah, well, let's leave it at that. Um, now, that is a fundamental breach of people's privacy, the type of privacy that is not just guaranteed to them by law under the Data Protection Act, uh, but also a breach of the fundamental principles that sit behind an individual's membership of the Labour Party. Now, each and every one of those individuals, some of whom, you know, who I've spoken to over the last few days, um, have had their names produced in their local CLP meetings. And again, a a round of victimisation that doesn't actually hold accountable people responsible for anti-Semitism or the failure to tackle anti-Semitism, but the very individuals who've been the subject and and victim of it. And that is victimisation. Again, another key uh, legal argument that we have made in the context of the EHRC uh, investigation, uh, the types of arguments that are completely um, uh, uh, absent from from the witness statement or the, from from the report in and in and of itself. So, look, our immediate response is to deal with this fundamental breach of, of data, and that's absolutely why the invest the uh, information commissioner's office are right to launch uh, a major review of of this data breach, and and quite frankly, while why the national executive committee of the Labour Party need to quickly resolve um, uh, to deal with this. So you know when you, when you have the 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 you know for a report that alleges that factionalism is the cause of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, to then be picked up by groups like the Socialist Campaign Group, who seem to entirely have missed the fundamental issue of a fundamental breach of people's privacy um, is in and of itself a factional response to what is alleged to be factionalism. There are Jewish members today who have their names and identities posted on far-right websites inviting people uh, to do and say and, and behave in absolutely abhorrent ways towards them. And, and the lack of duty of care that those members, our members, um, will receive is is breathtaking, um, and I'm afraid people are going to need to be held accountable for it. So, what are the next steps from here? So, we await the outcome of the investigation, and look, that investigation needs to be swift uh, and it needs to be thorough. It needs to be able to do all three of the things that the um, uh, the report has been commissioned to do. It needs to understand how this report came to be commissioned, and why it was commissioned um, in the way that it was. How can it be for a party responding to an inquiry by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission 
to display the names of individuals, both complainants and respondents in the way that it has, whilst failing in any circumstance to, uh, pr to, to make that argument in the context of either the terms of reference of the investigation or inequalities law. Uh, because in the absence of those two things, I'm afraid the report does not look like a submission to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. Um, to the trained eye, it looks like something completely different. We, cle we clearly need to come to an understanding about what members, what, what former members of senior staff um, have said, um, and they need to be held accountable for the things that they have said too. And likewise, we must get to the bottom of how such a fundamental big breach of people's private data got into public hands to be shared across hundreds of Labour Party WhatsApp groups in the way that it has. Your colleague, Adam Langleben, um, he was a guest on the first episode of this podcast. And that episode was actually cited in the dossier. And it was a, a specific part of Adam's um, opening, as it were, discussing what the how the initial problem began. And, you know, it's about the only part in the podcast that Adam discusses the early days and saying that Labour's right were responsible for creating the conditions in which conspiracies could flourish by trying to stop, uh, eject people from the party for once voting green or whatever. Um, that's pretty much the only thing he says about it and the rest he spends a lot of time saying that the Labour leadership is directly responsible and here's why they're directly responsible, citing evidence. Do you think it's interesting that the only thing that they picked up on in the podcast that they cited was in their defence and they ignored... The rest. Look, you only have to look at their treatment in the report of, of JLM as an organisation. You know, having gone through the period of four and a half years in which JLM has been, um, you know, has been, um, and its members have been have been weaponised and undermined and um, deliberately undermined uh, by the creation of other, other groups and, 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 and by briefings to press. You, know, you only have to look at our complete absence from critique or the narrative to to really understand what what they are seeking seeking to achieve, because of course, you know, regardless of, of of where the report seeks to lay blame, and there and there is plenty of blame to go around, lots of different people of all tenures. Again, it, it comes back to the central core truth: the Labour Party for four and a half years, including the leadership, including those currently in senior positions within Southside, have consistently claimed. Um, that anti-Semitism inside the Labour Party is not a problem, it's small, um, is uh, a smear, or is being used to witch-hunt and weaponize um, uh, the issue against the leadership. And actually, if you roll back the scenario of events, what you find is a Labour Party leadership that encouraged people with very abhorrent views into the Labour Party as their political home, by their failure to address long-standing sores uh, or to give the kind of moral leadership that is required and a system, an institution that neither has the willpower, the capacity or the resources to be able to address what then grew into a significant problem. So am I surprised that they used Adam's uh, comments kind of out of context and completely kind of bypassed um, the rest of his commentary, the rest of our commentary as we have made for four and a half years? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not because, unfortunately, trust evaporated with the Labour Party in terms of its ability to handle anti-Semitism a very long time ago.
So my last question to you is about the wider issues raised um, in the document and what your personal perspective is on those things um, and what you think it means for the future of the Labour Party going forward. There are times in the last four and a half years where, um, given the scale of problem that it has faced, to be frank, it's felt like the Labour Party is on its knees. And, um, uh, you know, and, 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 and the the recovery that goes through your mind having dealt with this issue for such a long time that we were starting to turn the corner under a new leadership whereby we could draw a line under anti-Semitism in anticipation of an Equalities and Human Rights report that would come to some finding of facts and an institution that would be willing and able to listen to those findings of fact and to be able to respond to them uh, with integrity, it just feels like it's just evaporated. And we're back to feeling like we did in the summer of hell in 2018, where the Labour Party sought to unilaterally redefine anti-Semitism into a, into a format that it found more comfortable uh, to deal with than that which the organised Jewish community has, uh, has ha, you know, understands. It requires everybody in this situation, everybody who had a modicum of power and a modicum of agency to take responsibility for their own actions and to move away from a situation of factional finger-pointing and factional um, blame uh, and factional behaviour. Now, there is not a single person, and probably those inside the Jewish labour movement, and even myself, right, who have not regretted things that we have done, things that we have said, or decisions that we took in the last four and a half years. But we cannot continue in a situation where Jewish Labour Party members are used as pawns in a factional battle and an ideological battle and a press battle that seeks to beat each other up. We did not ask for this fight. When those of us who took over JLM and, and turned it into an organisation that had more than just a couple of hundred members back in 2013, we did it on the basis that we thought we were trying to bring our Jewish values together with our political values and encourage and engage hundreds of young Jewish activists in a positive and fulfilling uh, 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 activism within the Labour Party to talk about care, to talk about housing, to talk about how our, our principles and our values apply to them. We never asked for a fight over anti-Semitism, but it's the Labour Party that gave us one. And we've quite frankly had to endure what has been four and a half years of hell. And so I'm thankful that the, the, the report effectively says, yes, we got it wrong. Yes, we are institutionally racist. Uh, because it's that type of truth that everybody needs to absorb. Not absorb it on the basis that somehow um, justifies the opinion that everybody took before this report came out, that somehow um, anti-Semitism didn't exist. It did exist. Our members experienced it. So what is the Labour Party now going to do to solve anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? The ball is in their court, as it has always been. And quite frankly, we are fed up of hearing excuses. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Corbynism the Postmortem. I'd like to thank my guests Stephen Bush, Nadine Bachelor Hunt, and Peter Mason. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash Ozcategy. I look forward to seeing you all again soon.